through and including first grade, I believe. And while they're doing that, we have been working our way through the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and we're in chapter 6, and I'm going to read the third paragraph. By God's appointment, they, they being our first parents, were the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted, and their corrupt nature passed on to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. I mentioned uh, at the beginning that we have with us, I just gave his first name, Blake, but it's Blake Lunsford, and there's a short bio of, of Blake as far as in the worship guide, which I'll go ahead and read. Now, Blake has a bachelor's degree from Liberty University and a master's degree from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary including coursework taken at Reformed Theological Seminary. He and his wife, Elizabeth, and we're, we're happy to have Elizabeth with us here this morning and uh, their four kids, were missionaries in Asia, specifically Turkey, for a few years. I mentioned their, their four kids, and their ages are eight, seven, four, and two, and there's one that's on the way, and... Uh, due in July, correct? Blake serves as the pastoral assistant at Grace Baptist Chapel, and he also works as a school teacher in Hampton City Schools. And I was asking Blake just what he does there, and he, he works at the alternate school, and this is high school kids. And I said, well, you're to be commended for that. Now, so we are so appreciative that we have Blake here with us this morning. And before he comes up to share what God has laid upon his heart, let's just lift him up in prayer. Father, once again, we are so thankful for how you provided for Joey, our pastor, and seeing him through this surgery. And through this, Father, and as he convalesces, we now are blessed to have Blake here with us this morning. And we appreciate his, his time. And Father, we, we know that your Holy Spirit will speak through the scripture that he shares and his words. May we be lifted up, strengthened, and edified. And I ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you all this morning. I'm a member, as said, at Grace Baptist Chapel in our church, and it's Pastor Ryan Davidson. Sends you greetings this Lord's Day. We are praying for Pastor Joey, and I've had the privilege of getting to know Joey some over the last year or so, and I'm excited about how the Lord is using him in this church to bring glory to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he continue to bless you all 
in the years to come. Let's now begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this, your day, and for your word. And I pray that this word this morning from Zechariah will energize us. I pray it will convict us. I pray that it will encourage us. We rely on your spirit for this. So Holy Spirit, we pray, come and work for Christ's glory, we pray. Amen. So I'm in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is towards the end of your Bibles. If you have a Bible, go ahead and, and open with me. Perhaps it will be on the screen. But if not, Zechariah is the next to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah, Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. I'm going to read it, and then we'll get started. Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 5. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head, and they put the clothes on him, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now Zechariah is grouped together in our Bibles along with the other minor prophets. And it's a book many of us, I think, are less familiar with. Some, so some background is necessary for us to get, the, to get the groundwork before we get going. First note, Zechariah and the people of this book lived after Israel began returning from captivity in Babylon. This book takes place around the same time that Ezra, Nehemiah, take place. And you'll recall that in Nehemiah, the people of Israel come back to their lands and they rebuild the temple and city walls and they have to rebuild most everything that goes with having a livelihood. Second note, by way of background, remember Israel is under, at this time, a different covenant with God. And part of that old covenant were stipulations that related to the promised land. And when Israel sinned, after repeated warnings, God used other nations to judge Israel. Israel was taken captivity by foreign empires. Last note, Zechariah is a man that God raises up as prophet, and God gives him visions, and these visions are full of hope. The people of Israel are poor in spirit, as you might expect. God has been kind to them. He's brought them back to their land. But they look around and imagine for a moment, what do the Israelites see? The temple, much of the city itself, its industry, its economy, it's in ruins. They have no city wall. Their sacrificial system, it's not what it once was. Israel is downcast. And this prophet, Zechariah, receives visions 
And the visions are meant to instill hope in these downcast people. And our text today fits this theme. God gives hope to the broken, to the downcast, to the sinner. So let's look this morning at this text. We're going to look at it in three headings, and then we'll have some application towards the end. The first thing to note is this. Satan opposes God's people. Satan opposes God's people. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. That's verse 1. Notice there are three beings in this vision. There's Joshua the high priest, there's the angel of the Lord, and then there's Satan. Notice that Joshua and Satan are both facing towards the angel of the Lord. This is like a courtroom scene. Satan and Joshua are facing the angel of the Lord because he is the judge to whom appeal must be made. They are facing the angel of the Lord because it is he who is in charge. You may wonder on this point, how is the angel of the Lord the judge? Is not God alone judge? No, it is true that God alone is judge. And note that in this passage, the angel of the Lord, a few verses later, is just referred to as the Lord. So it's evident right away that the angel of the Lord is divine. Who is this angel of the Lord? You may, you may recall other scriptures that speak in a similar, similar way. Remember Moses? Remember Moses when he's when he sees the burning bush, he is told there to take off his sandals because he's what? He's standing on holy ground. And the text there says it's the angel of the Lord who's in the midst of the burning bush. Exodus 3 says this, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So the angel of the Lord that appeared is divine. Let's turn back now to Zechariah. Who is the angel of the Lord in, the Zechariah? in Zechariah? Is it the same person? The angel of the Lord appears elsewhere in Zechariah, specifically in chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, look with me at chapter 1, verse 12. Got to get this right before we get going with the rest, rest of the text. Got to get this part right. Zechariah 1.12, there we see the angel of, of the Lord, and notice what he's doing. The angel's praying to God. 
It says this, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? So here, chapter 1, the angel of the Lord is praying to God. Okay? The angel of the Lord prays to God on behalf of Israel. He asks God to have mercy on Jerusalem. So who is this? The angel of the Lord is divine, and yet the angel of the Lord is distinct from God the Father. Do you see who this is? This is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ. This is a picture of Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. This is what some theologians, fancy word, this is what some theologians refer to as a Christophany. The angel of the Lord is Jesus because no one else can both pray to God and yet be God. No one can pray to God and yet be the judge of man and even of Satan. Only the God-man can fulfill this role. So now Joshua the high priest. This Joshua is not the same Joshua you may recall from the day of Moses. This story is in Zechariah. This Joshua, this takes place centuries later. This Joshua is a different Joshua. This Joshua is in the line of the Levites. He is a priest. And then lastly, we see Satan. Satan is playing the role here as the accuser. This is quite literally what he is doing in this passage. And this is what he does time and time again, isn't it? It's even his namesake. His name literally means the accuser. It's his name. It's also his occupation. Day and night, according to Revelation 12, Satan accuses the brethren. Day and night. So the fact that Satan is accusing one of God's people should not surprise us. This fits right along with what we know about Satan. But this scene becomes especially concerning because of who it is that's on trial. It's not just anyone on trial. It's the high priest. It's Joshua. And as we see in verse 3, Joshua is wearing dirty clothes. And this is no small matter. It has massive implications. The filthiness shows us Joshua is guilty. But even more, this is not just about one man's sin. This is about all of Israel. Joshua is the high priest. He is responsible for interceding for the people of Israel. This filthiness makes him ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. He's no longer fit to enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. So this is highly concerning for the Israelites. And Zechariah, as he sees this vision, he must have quickly made this connection. If Joshua is filthy, how will Israel's spiritual needs be met? And it's, it's not as if Joshua is a little bit dirty either. We don't, we don't need to misunderstand this point. I'm a public school teacher, and my students, when they get new shoes, they don't want to get them dirty, right? But even more than that, they don't want to crease their shoes. And so on the first day when they have their shoes, they come in, they walk on their heels, sort of like this. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, I got some new shoes on. 
don't want to put a crease in them. They don't want to get them dirty. They want them looking pristine. Joshua here, it's, it's not that he has a little crease. It's not that he's a little bit dirty. This word for filthiness, you'll notice, this word describes clothes that are soiled with human excrement. This signals to the Israelites that he is especially dirty. Really, really dirty. Joshua needs new clothes. And this picks up on a theme. Receiving new clothes or receiving a covering. This is a theme that runs throughout redemptive history. Clothes have a symbolic meaning. At the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, after, an, after Adam and Eve's sin against God, God in his mercy, he clothes their nakedness. He uses animal skins, and this implies that there was sacrifice involved. Blood was shed, that they may be covered. And at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, there are a number of scenes in which different beings are clothed. Consider you, consider what you, believer, will be wearing on the last day. Revelation 3.5 says this, He who overcomes, if you persevere to the last day, you will be clothed in white garments. It says this, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Christians will be clothed with new clothes, with pure clothes. For one more example, recall the parable about the king who arranged a marriage for his son. It's Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Remember, the king's servants, they call many to the wedding, but many did not want to come. So the king said, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Servants do so, and the wedding hall is eventually filled with guests, and then the king's the king, he, he comes in and he sees the guest. And there's a man, there's a man at the wedding. He didn't have on the right clothes. Do you remember what the king does? Because of this, the king throws him out the wedding. He doesn't just throw him out the wedding. He gets his servants. He gets his servants and he says, bind him, hand and foot, take him away and cast him into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? He didn't have the right clothes. You see, this is more than just a, about clothing. This is symbolic. In a similar way, those who want to attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, they must have on the proper clothing. Consider the fact that Satan has seen that Joshua the high priest does not have on the proper attire. And Satan here is acting out what Peter describes. He's, he's a roaring lion seeking to devour. Satan wants to destroy Joshua. He wants to destroy Israel. And in a way, this is a golden chant. It's the high priest. And think of Israel for a moment. The temple system, the very institution that God set in place is no more. The high priest is caught guilty. He's red-handed. And notice that Joshua, he doesn't even say anything in his own defense. Joshua knows he's guilty. But interestingly, this passage, it doesn't record any of Satan's words either. 
Perhaps Satan wasn't able to get any words in, but even if he did, his words are irrelevant. The Israelites and you, church, you don't need to hear what Satan has to say. He won't say anything good. He'll only lie or make the people revel in their shame. Remember, this is a book of encouragement. Zechariah doesn't record any of Satan's words. We only hear one person's words in the courtroom. And they are the words that matter most to us. They are the words of the angel of the Lord. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So this then will serve as our second heading. The Lord rebukes Satan. The Lord rebukes Satan. This is true for Joshua the high priest. The Lord steps in. But it's true for Christians today too. Brothers and sisters here today, are you listening? Are you listening to the words of the evil one? There's no need for you to. His words are irrelevant. They have no place in your life. There is no need to consider the weight of his arguments or his accusations. If you sin, let it be the Holy Spirit to guide you as to what to do next. There's no need to listen to the voice of the evil one. Let God's spirit convict. Let God's spirit console. Do not let Satan's words dwell in you, but let the words of God, let the words of scripture. If you say anything to Satan, let it be scripture. Let it be a rebuke. Just as our Lord in the desert spoke back to Satan, so can you. Give Satan an earful of God's words. This is what Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, is renowned for doing. And here's his counsel to believers. Martin Luther said this, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. Tell him, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Luther speaks back. And his words are reminiscent of the next phrase in our passage. You can say this to Satan too. I am a brand plucked from the fire. We are like Lot, aren't we? We are like Lot who escaped from that wicked place, Sodom and Gomorrah. The cities were full of debauchery and immorality of all sorts. Lot heeded God's call. He ran away. He didn't look back. Fire fell from heaven. Those cities were destroyed. And that day, Lot became a brand plucked from the fire. And brothers and sisters, that's true of us. Satan has no sway over this fact. We have been chosen by God. We have been individually plucked from the fire and placed into God's house. And once we are in his house, there is no need to fear the fire anymore. Even Joshua, Israel's high priest, is a brand plucked from the fire. And the angel of the Lord holds this fact up in the courtroom. This one has been chosen. Let that sink in. Chosen. He has been plucked from the fire. You will have no claim on him. 
hear a few more words from the pen of Luther, this from that great hymn, just another encouragement to speak back to Satan. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble, not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that little word that will fell him, that will make Satan fall, it's whose word? It's the word of Christ. Jesus silences Satan with a word, just as he silenced the raging storm on the sea. In a word, there's no contest. Third heading. The Lord clothes his people. In our text, the Lord clothes Joshua, the high priest. We can make this more personal, can't we? The Lord clothes his people. Verse 3 says this, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Two things to note. First, his dirty clothes are removed, and then secondly, new clothes are placed upon him. And the removal of clothing, it's, it's more important than becoming clean. Joshua's sins are forgiven. The two are equated in our text. Verse 4 shows that the removal of dirty clothing, it's the same thing as removing the inequity from Joshua. Joshua's perversity, his depravity, his guilt, and his dirty clothing, they're removed in one, one fell swoop. And here it's becoming, pardon me, recognize also that Joshua doesn't do anything to deserve this cleansing. It's not said explicitly in our text, but we know he hasn't deserved anything. He hasn't even said anything. It's all grace. It's the angel of the Lord who steps in and removes the iniquity. And grace here is not just forgiveness. The angel of the Lord promises to him, I will clothe you with rich robes. So there is forgiveness, and then there is a covering And here it's becoming clear that the Lord is making Joshua fit to be a temple priest again. The Lord cares about the temple system and is restoring it. He instituted the system. Now he's he's reestablishing the same system. And surely, think of the Israelites for a moment. Surely this is encouraging. After all they've been through, they've been taken away, their city has been ransacked. Surely this is encouraging. And it garners, notice, it garners Zechariah's attention. He's on the outside of the scene. This whole time he's been standing by watching this scene play out. And now he, he speaks out. Let them put a clean turban on his head. Like Where'd that come from? The turban is the ceremonial head covering that the high priest would wear. And on it read, holy to the Lord. So the turban would complete the priest's garments and make him fit for service 
in the temple. So it's as if Zechariah was sitting on the outside of the scene, and in his excitement, he just bursts out. He sees that the high priest is being reclothed, and, and he wants the priest to be ready for service. And after all, this would be the priest who would offer sacrifice for his sins. And so he, he cries out with joy, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. There are servants of the angel of the Lord who are present. They're not called out specifically, but that is who the Lord speaks to. And they do indeed put the turban and the clothing on Joshua and the priesthood is restored. This is a recrowning of sorts. And all in all, it's a really wonderful, encouraging vision Take careful note now. Let's put some of these components together. The angel of the Lord, he's not just the judge of Joshua the high priest. He's also his defender. He's the defense lawyer, if you will. The angel of the Lord is also the one who provides him with salvation. He is the one who forgives his sin and clothes him. There is no doubt that this is none other than the Lord Jesus on display. There is one name by which men can be saved. The same one who forgives Joshua is the same one who forgives you and me. And this hope is not for us only, but for all who repent of their sins and call upon his name for salvation. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How does anyone have their iniquity removed? How can anyone be clean? It's only through Jesus. And as redemptive history unfolds, God's plan of salvation over the course of the Bible, it becomes more and more clear, doesn't it? Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life. He dies on the cross, bearing the shame and the sin of his people. And the book of Hebrews makes it clear. Jesus becomes the great high priest, doesn't he? So think about this. The angel of the Lord who cleansed Joshua, the high priest, has now become our high priest. There are some differences. Unlike Joshua, our great high priest never sinned. And unlike Joshua, he does not need new clothes. And unlike Joshua, our great high priest does not need a defense attorney. And unlike Joshua, our great high priest does not need to offer sacrifices, for he himself is the sacrifice. But like Joshua... Our great high priest was also put on trial, wasn't he? Joshua was on trial because he was dirty, because he was sinful. Jesus was put on trial, though he was clean. At his trial, Joshua was crowned with a priestly turban. At his trial, Jesus was crowned with thorns. At his trial, Joshua was given new clothes, but at his trial, Jesus was stripped and his clean clothes were taken from him. Jesus was then hung on a cross. He breathed his last. And at that moment, the temple curtain was torn in two. There is now no need for a Jewish sacrificial system, nor its priest. Those were but shadows. 
Christ has now come and forever secured our way to God. He is the ultimate sacrifice, and his righteousness is now our clothing. We will one day be at that great wedding banquet, and we will not have to worry about a king coming in and seeing us with the wrong clothes on. For the king himself will give us clothes, won't he? Let's conclude some points of application. First, listen to God's encouragement. This is a book to downcast people. And in our busyness, in our day-to-day, we often miss out on the ways that God is very obviously trying to encourage us. In this day, God gives a prophet visions of hope that they may be encouraged to persevere, that they may rebuild their economy, their walls, their temple. And you, believer, are his child. He is your good, your understanding father. And he provides means to encourage you. This is what we're doing right now. The ordinary means of grace are to encourage you. We hear God's word. We sing. We recite liturgy. We are prayed for. All of these things are for your encouragement in the faith. Baptism, the Lord's Supper. God behaved the same way toward the Israelites. He gave them means, signs, and symbols. And in this book, he gave a vision of hope. So the point is this. God cares about your faith, believer. You are running a marathon, and it's as if God has set up means. So as you run, he's beckoning you to keep running, keep running, keep running. He cares about your faith. He provides means to encourage you. Second piece of application, God can still use you despite your sin. He can still use you despite your sin. One of the great privileges of being a Jew was that God was revealing himself to the world through them. They were instruments, tools, they were vessels for God. And the privilege of being a Jew, in part, was not simply that God protected them, but that God was using them. Is there anything more fulfilling than God doing his work through you? So think back to their situation. They've lost this opportunity, haven't they? So they think. Their forefathers had sinned. They were idolaters. And they sinned in such a grievous way that the temple had been destroyed. The Jews wondered what you may be wondering. Could God use them as instruments again after all their sin? Well, God did use the Israelites again for his glory. From their people came other prophets. John the Baptist. There are others too. There's other key figures. Mary and Joseph and God's own son, of course. The 12 disciples and many others still influence us today. God used the Jews and their posterity despite, despite their sinful past. And believer, God can still use you too. It's one of the messages I think here. Perhaps you've sinned in such a way that you have lost money or opportunity even then, God can still use you for his purposes. Your job is not to sit around and, and wonder, oh, what could have been? Repent, believe the gospel, look for ways 
to serve the Lord. Over the years, I've been encouraged time and again from the story of David Brainyard. You may know it. Brainyard was a contemporary of Jonathan Edwards, and Brainyard ended up becoming a missionary to an Indian tribe. But before that, Brainyard was training for the ministry. He was in seminary, and in seminary, he insulted a professor. He said something that he definitely should not have said, and he was kicked out of the seminary. And in that day, doing such a thing, it, it changed the course of his life. He could no longer get a job as a pastor somewhere because of this particular sin. It completely, one sin, changed the course of his life. And so Brainyard is depressed and thinking, how can I, what do I do now? My, my, my ministry is, is over. Well, God opened his eyes. He repented, believed the gospel, and Brainyard ended up becoming a missionary to a very needy Indian people group. And if Brainyard had not gone to that people group, who among them would have been saved? Jonathan Edwards then records his story for us, and we have it now. This isn't to excuse Brainyard's sin. This isn't to excuse sin whatsoever, but it is to illustrate that Despite his sin, God used Brainyard, and we know his name probably because of these incidents. Thirdly and lastly, last piece of application is this, look to Jesus for salvation. If you are here this morning and you are not clothed with righteousness, Jesus is able to save you. Your sins, even though they are many, can be forgiven. Jesus can save you. Your shame, your guilt, no matter how great, Christ can cleanse you. Jesus tells a story. You'll recall this story. He tells a story about a terrible sinner who up and left his family and went to a foreign land. This sinner was so bad that he squandered his father's wealth. He, he, he squandered it in sensuous living. He brought shame upon the family name. But this sinner, he sinned in such a way, he, he was brought down in such a way, he lost so much money that he longed to eat the food that the livestock ate. This sinner was brought low. But then this sinner, he remembered his father. He knew that his father was good, and he returned to his father, didn't he? And when the father saw the son a great way off, he ran to him. And the father forgives the son, but he doesn't stop there. He also clothes him. The son says, make me like one of your hired servants. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. There's that clothing again. Our salvation is more than forgiveness of sins, we are clothed, notice, rich robes. We are clothed with rich robes, and no one, not even Satan himself, can remove them from us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and for the encouragement that you place upon the paths of our lives. 
And I pray that all of us here will take advantage of these means of grace that you provide us. We thank you for Zechariah. We thank you for this vision. And I pray that it will instill in us a hope and that we will persevere to the last day. And I pray also for any who may not yet be saved, that you will convict them of their sin and draw them into the sweet arms of Christ. In his name we pray.